Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. I know that you have but little power, many dunamis. It's a great word. It means itty-bitty uh, itty bitty power. <laughs> and, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now here's the first thing I need to say is there's so much here. I cannot get to it. I apologize in advance. We're only going to be able to look at a couple of things. But what a wonderful what a wonderful text we have before us, but I won't be able to unpack it all. However, there are two phrases that I want to focus on for just a few moments, and they're quite rare in Scripture, occurring only two times a piece or so. So the first one is Jesus referred to Himself as the true one. Now, obviously, there's a lot of verses about Him and truth but the reference to himself as the true one is relatively uh, rare. The second one is this, and that is he is the one who has the key of David. So first, the, the true one. God is the only being who is incapable of lying. He's incapable of it. He cannot do it. You know, people will try to turn you around by saying, uh, is there anything that God can't do? And your natural response would be, no, God can do anything. No, He can't. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He cannot mislead. All of God's words are true. God has never gone back on a promise. He has never lied. God has never made an honest mistake. It's never happened. God, in all His ways, in all His words... Is perfect. Second, Jesus identifies himself in verse 7 as the one who has the key of David. Now, the mention of, of David immediately puts this in a messianic context. So, turn with me. Let's go back to it and, and, and look at it. If you have your uh, Bibles, you can find Isaiah chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 15 through 22. And we read a very interesting, interesting story here in Isaiah 
22, 15 through 22. If you've attended any of our Wednesday nights, you may have been there when we spoke of this one. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You have cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. You, O strong man, He will seize firm, hold on you, and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a vast land. There you shall die, and there shall your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. That day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Sound familiar? Now, I love the verse, the Lord's going to seize you firm, hold around and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball in a wide land. Uh, it's just here we need to think of Oh, I saw him a minute ago. Did he leave? John, are you in here, John Talbert? I was going to ask your permission in real time to say this, but since it's a matter of public record, I will say it anyway. Based on what I was able to find, John's hammer throw of over 200 feet is still the record in the Kansas Sports Hall of Fame boys track and state. It's, it's still there. Secondly... John brought home a national championship to Hutchinson Community College with the hammer throw. And this is precisely, exactly what God is describing. He, this is a, something that every warrior in the ancient Near East knew and feared. And it was a specialized group of people who would take this and spin around their body or their head and they would fling these uh, stones out, and it was uh, a very dangerous for them. It was their, their version of artillery. And here you have something that God Himself, He wasn't going to throw a stone, He was going to grab Shebna by the ankles, and He was going to spin him around, and He was going to throw him out into a vast open field. And then when He did that, He was going to give the key of David to Eliakim. And with that key, Eliakim would open and none would shut and shut and none would open. Now the metaphor here is, is, is fairly clear. The key speaks to the reality of Christ's royal rule over the universe. Luke 1, 32 and 33 tells us this, "...He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High." And the Lord God will give him uh, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be 
no end. He is sovereign today. He is sovereign yesterday. He is sovereign tomorrow. And one day, He will rule from the throne of David in the millennium. So let's loop back now to Hezekiah's tunnel. Fascinatingly enough, even in Isaiah's day, the key of David was already a metaphor. It was already a symbol. And all these metaphors and these symbols, they come from some place. They have a beginning. And so the question is, is there a beginning here? And if there is, can we find it? I believe that we can. About 3,000 years ago, David became ruler over Israel, but he didn't have a capital. You'll recall when Saul ruled Israel, he ruled from Gibeah. He didn't rule from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Jebusite city. The Jebusites were a tribe of Canaanites, and Jerusalem was a walled city, not small walls. Jerusalem was a fortified city that... David could not possibly take, but David wanted Jerusalem. He wanted Jerusalem to be his capital. But he had a problem. He had several problems. I mean, it had been ten years, it had been a decade since he fought with Goliath. He had fled from Saul. He had feigned madness. He had all of this behind him. And now he was ruler. He was king. But he had nowhere to lay his head, and he wanted Jerusalem. And uh, the Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem, they had all the food and the water they could possibly want. They could outlast any siege. David could not take the city. In fact, the Jebusites were so confident, you can read the story in First Chronicles chapter 11, that they actually manned the walls with the lame and the cripple and the sick, just to taunt David. And the problem is, it was a fact. David could not break through. The door was shut. David could not open it. But did God have an open door for David? Yes. But it sure didn't look like one. Jerusalem's water supply came from the Gihon, the Gihon Spring, and the problem with that was it was outside the city wall. And so the Jebusites knew this, and they knew that that was a point where an enemy could take advantage, and so they built this tower around the Gihon Spring, the minimum, the smallest stone weighing about three tons, and he couldn't get through it. Children could sit on the top of that tower and just roll rocks down and kill the mightiest, most valiant of David's men. And so he could not get through it. But the thing is, David needed water too. As it turned out, that in the Kidron Valley, so Jerusalem would be here, that would be the Kidron Valley over here, and the water would leak out into the valley. Well, where did this water come from? It came from fissures in the mountain that Jerusalem was built on so that there were, I don't know if you'd call them caves, fissures is the best, the best word. And of course, they, you, couldn't, you couldn't find them. You could find where the water was coming out and then you would have to 
to dig around and then maybe maybe find a hole. Was it possible that one of those fissures went on up to the Gihon and then from the Gihon went on up behind the walls in Jerusalem? So David was so desperate and this was so dangerous that David said, whoever can go through this spring, whoever can go up this water shaft, I will make the commander of my entire army. So that's where Joab came in. So Joab stood up and he says, I'm there. I, I can do this. Well, the first thing they had to do was to find an entrance. And all this, of course, had to be done under darkness because all of these places were near the wall where a simple bow and arrow or a simple rock could kill them. So it was, was done at night. And the Jebusites knew it couldn't be done. It's not possible. Why? The same reason I was in danger in Hezekiah's tunnel. The rain, the water, the spring was constantly feeding water into there. And when you're lower than the Gihon itself, which is here, there in the valley, then all those fissures are going to be filled with water. And the only way that you can go through there is to take... Everything you got on off. Maybe just the lightest of clothing. Maybe you could tie a dagger to your foot or something, but you couldn't carry a weapon. You couldn't have armor going through there. And so Joab and a small squad of men said, let's do it. And so off, off they went. They were able to find one of these fissures. They were able to dig it out and open enough enough where a person could be inside there. They had no lights. They were feeling their way with their hands in the, the darkness of the tunnel and the inky darkness of the water. Likely, if you've ever done anything like this before, then you know that they're going to tie a rope around his ankle so that when he goes up and he goes in, if the rope goes slack, you pull back as hard as you can. You try to get him back because he's passed out from no air. And then he'll have some kind of signal if he gets through and finds a little pocket of air to pull on it and get him. And so that's what they did. This is one of the most uh, frightening special operations missions in the history of the world. They did not know where those tunnels were going to go. They went in the dark. They went in the blind. And yet somehow they made their way and then they found this shaft. It's 13 meters high. I don't know what 13 meters is, 40 feet, but that looks about right. They sh it's a sheer rocky thing. They climbed up this thing and they got into the Gihon itself. And then from there they went up. There was a man-made shaft that went from the Gihon up behind the city walls. And then they went there and quietly as they could, quickly as they could. You know what? We didn't know any of this from the Babylonian takeover until about 100 years ago. This is a gift of archaeology to us that we know how they did this. And so they got to the well where they drew the water from inside the city and then it was... It was daggers and as fast as you could go to the gate. And he and his men, they ran as quickly as they could and they got to the gate. They found the key, uh, overcame the guards, got the key and opened it up. And David and his men 
were waiting outside. Now, here's the thing. You want to talk about faith. They were by the city walls waiting to come in in the dark. And no one had alerted. No one had cared because they couldn't do anything in the night anyway. They had no idea. They had no idea at all if Joab was going to be successful. They had no idea when the gates were going to open or if they were even going to open. And then, boom! Suddenly the gates opened and David and his men poured in. Poured in. And within hours, the city was his. It's an amazing, an amazing story. Now, I'll tell you what. Sometimes open doors, they don't look open. You know, we're waiting for, we say, oh, if God closes a door, He'll open a window. I don't, I need a ladder to get through a window these days. You know, so it's like, I know what a window looks like, but there, this did not look like an open door. It looked like a muddy hole in the ground that you crawl through in the dark, not knowing whether you were going to even live. And yet, the Lord had opened this door that did not look open at all. Uh, we discovered, Barbara and I discovered just a few weeks ago, we'd labored in Jordan for a number of years and, and honestly thought we'd left nothing behind. It was a wonderful experience. We had many uh, wonderful spiritual moments. But we didn't leave anything behind that we had known about anyway. All we had done was started a little homeschool for our kids. And then some other missionaries said, hey, can you teach our children as well? And we said, sure, why not? Let's do it. Well, after we left, unbeknownst to us completely until about three weeks ago, that little school kept going. That little school is now K through 12. That little school has 200 students. That little school is uh, registered with the government. That little school continues on today. We walked through an open door. We didn't even know it was there. I don't think we need to identify these open doors. I think we just need to be faithful and do the job. Joab wasn't looking for an open door. He was looking to do the task that David had set him to. And what we're to do are the tasks that God has set us to do. In Ephesians, you know what? In Ephesians, God tells us that these tasks that He has set us about, you and me about, He prepared them before we were born. He prepared them before the foundation of the world. The key of David was brought to him for a door that man had shut, but that God had opened. The Jebusites had shut the door, but John and Isaiah tell us if God opens the door, it cannot be shut. David's authority, his rule, his reign over the city is, in fact, the key of David. Someday, by Jesus' authority, he will rule and reign 
over His earthly kingdom, the millennium. He owns the indisputable right to the royal line, Israel's promised king, and He will rule the nations. You know, keys, whenever they're mentioned in the Bible, they represent access and authority. It was always when I would go to one uh, new duty station after uh, another, there was always this process of coming with no keys, maybe a key to my car and house, ending up with a whole raft of keys. Sometimes you have to wear them on a ring. And then not having those keys anymore. So it's a matter of access. It's a matter of authority. And you know this to be true. If you have your car keys with you, you're the one who has control over your car. I don't. I'll set off an alarm if I try to get in your car. If you have a house, same way. Safe deposit box. Keys give you access and authority. And it's only by the grace of God that any door which has been opened in our life has been there. And it's been made that way by Him. It is God alone who opens doors. It is God alone who shuts them. We don't even have time to talk about shut doors, but I'll tell you this about shut doors. When God closes the door, we misinterpret the sound. Oh God, what did I do? What did I do that you would shut this door on me? That's, that's not the way to understand it. The way to understand it is that God is moving you. Sometimes gently, sometimes not as gently. But God will have His uh, work done. It, with Him, it is not our education. It is not our uh, boss. It's not anything that gives us promotion or increase. It is God Himself. It is not ourselves. It is Him alone. He is God. And you know, his, uh, one of my new favorite verses is, uh, He works for us even while we're sleeping. Isn't that great? Your thought about that? He works on your behalf even while you're sleeping. Psalm uh, 117 and I think 127 as well. I mean, he says, I know your works. Philadelphia is the only church he doesn't say anything. Uh, he has nothing against them. He acknowledges the little strength that they have and then he presents this open door. But he says, I know your works. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. When you were getting ready... To come to church this morning, He was with you. When you depart and go home, He will be with you. And in fact, He is with you right now. Right now. While the world patiently endures the coronavirus, Jesus Christ is with us and going through that with us now, He knows. And He knows we have little power. I so love that little phrase. <laughs> Literally, mini dunamis, right? It's like, a, it's like a firecracker. Pop! <laughs> That's all we've got. He knows that it's an itty-bitty power base. But it's that itty-bitty power base that 
glorifies and magnifies God. Everywhere you look in the Bible, it is our weakness that allows His majesty and His glory and His power to be set before us. Jesus knows your patient endurance. Some of you have patiently endured many, many things. He knows that. He knows the chapel's patient endurance. For you, for the church here, He has set an open door before us. So what this means is that He's given us the opportunity to do things for Him that have eternal values. In the varieties of ministries we have here, uh, again, some may not look like open doors. You know, you may feel it needs some excavation. Uh, and the way seems difficult, but they, they are here. And often when we go through an open door, we encounter difficulty and we, we begin, unfortunately, to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and we put them on ourselves. What is this? What did we do? Did we read you wrong? What did we do wrong? I don't understand when the Lord is simply simply allowing His will to be done in ways that we, we cannot understand at all. Like Joab. He didn't even know if he was going to make it, but it was all in preparation for the glory of God. Verse 9, he says, I will make the, those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they... Um, are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this open door that God has set before us is not simply just for our ministry, but it's also for us uh, in general. God desires to show you favor. Do you know the Scripture tells us that He is... While we're sleeping, right, he's awake at night thinking of ways that he can bless us. Thinking of ways that he can do this for us. God cares. He will vindicate you. We should be people of peace. You know, you have this the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews. They're not. They lie, and they were lying about these believers in Philadelphia. Some of you are being lied about. I don't know who you are. I don't know what the context is. I don't know what it is. But I know human nature. And I know it's human nature to do those kinds of things. You know what the Bible says to you about this? Don't worry about it. Don't. Do not try to vindicate yourself. The Lord will vindicate you. Be a person of peace and compassion and mercy. Proverbs tells us that the bird will flit around, you know, flit around, but it, it, it can't find a place to land and it'll go away. The Lord will vindicate you. The Lord will heal. Rather than trying to make it right or to get even worse, some sort of vengeance, we should seek reconciliation and restoration. Even, even, if the other person does not. We should build. We should build up rather than tear down. That's what he says what he's going to do is he's going to, through 
through those kinds of actions, through loving one another, Philadelphia, brotherly love, through loving one another, those people in the synagogue of Satan who lie are going to realize that God is with you and He is not with them. Verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here we have a reference to the great tribulation, and that's an outpouring of God's wrath on the, on the whole earth. And God was going to keep them from it. I, just a, a peek at the original language here. To keep from it means to to carefully attend to, to, to guard, to, to keep, okay? So to, to really to protect, to take care of. And then this word out, it's, it's this word ek, it's where we get exit. We see it right there. It's in print. Exit, it means out. And you have this prefix there, exhale. The air goes out, exhaust. It comes out of the, the car, exile. It means you go, you go out of your country or out of your place to someplace else. There's no mistake here. He's not saying, I will keep you through it. He's not saying, I will keep you uh, from it in that sense. He's, I'm going to take you out of it. The church will be spared from the tribulation. And I understand this. Please understand this right now. It's not because the tribulation is hard got nothing to do with it. Oh, the Lord is going to spare us. Spare us from what? Genocide? You know how the church at Philadelphia ended? The Turks took them all out in 1200, put them in a coliseum and killed them all. You think that's not tribulation? How much tribulation do you want? You think the loss of somebody is, is less than now than it, than it will be in the Great Tribulation? That's silliness. We suffer pain. We suffer tribulation here and now. That's not the point. I'll tell you what the point is. It's a wonderful theological point, and that's this. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is, hear me, hear me, especially if there's shame and guilt, hear me on this. There is no condemnation. There is no wrath. The wrath of God was spent on His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We are not destined to wrath. We are destined to rule with Him, to reign with Him. It's not that the tribulation is going to be any worse. It will be on a mass scale worse in that sense. But I'm telling you, it won't be worse for any individual. It's weird freed from that through the power of Jesus Christ, the One who conquers. I will make Him a pillar in the temple of My God. Never shall He go out of it. And I will write on Him the name of My God and the name of the city of My God, the new Jerusalem. We're part of the family of God and there is no wrath. There, we will... Those of us who have trusted Christ will never, ever, ever feel the wrath of God. Period. Full stop. The Word of God 
is clear about that. Jesus is the one who came to save, not to destroy. He has set an open door before us this morning. An open door. But I'll tell you, there's the primary open door that must be walked through before any other door can be. And that is the decision to walk through the open door to trust Christ as your Savior. It must be so. The wrath of God will dissipate. It will be gone for you. And the only thing that's left will be His loving discipline, His care for you, His compassion. Decide. And it is a decision to come to Him. And those of us who know Him, we should be able to rest in this. This should be something that we should be able to have peace. Even in the midst of this viral outbreak, trust me, if we live long enough, there will be another and it will be worse. How will we find peace then? For me, peace is not found in hand sanitizer. (laughs) Peace is found in Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. Father, we are so deeply amazed by you. We, we love you. We, we cast ourselves upon you as well because sometimes when you have given us an open door that cannot be shut, uh, we may not even be able to see it at all. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Give us the encouragement and the strength that we need to live lives that are a fragrance to you and bring you glory. Through Christ our Lord, amen.